North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Dr. Kuntz, what does Florida and the recount in Florida have to do with the New Deal? The recount in Florida has to do with the New Deal because the realities that came into American electoral politics in the 1930s were definitively broken by 2000. And so one of the things that you can see in the New Deal is that what you're getting Anytime you have electoral politics, it's just the way that in a Republican system, power gets distributed. It's always a proxy electoral politics for something else. The New Deal was one configuration of power. But by 2000, when 
what would now be described as our democracy <laughs> was going through a particular kind of crisis. By then, the distributions of power and therefore the electoral configuration of power was just completely different. So the New Deal is kind of one epoch. And we've talked on the show before about the idea that we should not think of American history as a single republic. That's it, it, it's it's factually silly to think that way. The New Deal is one set of facts or one instance of a republic, whatever, call it the third, the fourth, I don't care how you want to dice up American history. The things that brought the New Deal and through the New Deal, the Democratic Party to such lasting dominant power until honestly, roughly the 1980s, so close to half a century cumulatively, those realities had changed enough by 2000 that even though Al Gore in the 2000 presidential election was running on the basis of a New Deal alliance, for instance, between rural Southern whites and blacks nationwide and Jews, that's a, that's, those are probably your three biggest components in the New Deal coalition. Those had by the year 2000 fallen apart. So the Florida recount is extremely helpful to understand both as a time where many things were new, but also looking back from 2022, back 22 years, to a lot of things that uh, are now old for us, but at the time were shocking, such as the idea that we could so vehemently disagree on who the president actually was. So I, I think that um, maybe not for our listener base, because they are all spectacularly... Um, narrowly educated to just say it, say it kindly. And I, I just, it's, it's a compliment guys. That's not meant to, to denigrate you. You know, things, you know, things that the average person doesn't know, but yeah. I'm not sure that's all of our listener base. I think we got a pretty sure. wide, wide reach here. And I'm just kind of, I don't think I'm out on a limb at all. going to yeah. suggest that the, the average pastor in America, let alone the average Lutheran church, Missouri synod pastor, yeah. let alone the average set of leaders in an LCMS congregation or any congregation is going to be kind of shocked by you saying that we, we haven't had one Republic, that we aren't a, a clear right. and precious stream of glorious independent exceptionalism going from the very veins of Washington through Lincoln to, uh, to world war two and, and beyond. I mean, are, are yep. we not a shining city on a hill? Are we not a, a, a beacon of freedom and prosperity? Is that not why 2001 happened? It's just because they hated our freedom, right? Um, th yeah, that's right. Yeah. That mythology is, is potent, even if you don't yeah. like buy all of it. Um, the red, white, and blue still flies a lot of places, and certainly in a lot of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod sanctuaries. The red, white, and blue, the, the idea of what the red, white, and blue stands for is definitely, especially for LCMS pastors, because the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod is one of the most Republican voting denominations in the United States consistently. That let's say, conglomeration of ideas or images or Lee Greenwood songs is a very 1980s conglomeration. So if the Democratic Party, even down to this day, I mean, if you think about the Democratic Party is generally a bunch of groups that are trying to get into some kind of protected legal and financial status that have really nothing else in common with each other. Labor unions being predominantly white, Southern whites until the 70s, blacks throughout the nation, including in the South, 
Jews, now also gays, much more recent immigrant groups like Indians. These all form coalitions and the Democratic Party is expert, certainly since the New Deal, at putting those coalitions together. The Republican Party is a very different animal in its configuration. And this especially matters for a church like the LCMS, because the Republican Party is explicitly ideological and apparently pays no attention to its own demographics. So, for example, sounds just like the LCMS to me. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, right. I mean, think about it this way, right? So if I wanted to appeal to LCMS people and I said, I want to get your grandkids back in church. I mean, I, I hear that's every single LCMS congregation. I want to get your grandkids back in church. So then I would I would be producing tons of studies about what what is causing, you know, white children in the Midwest and the Great Plains not to be in church, because that would be the heart of the LCMS and the heart of the problem to start with. There would be other regions, there would be other groups, but that would be the place to start with. Comparatively, the Republican Party almost never. Now, this is changing a little bit, like Blake Masters and certain other, let's say, post-Trump Trumpists or, or you know, simul Trump Trumpists, those going along with him. They're starting to pay some attention to this, but generally the Republican Party doesn't discuss the existence of straight white Christians, even though that's that's the Republican voting base and taking Christian there in a very loose, not a confessional sense, but kind of a sociological sense. Mm-hmm. That's who votes Republican. I mean, if you're a married white male and you're not voting Republican, you're you're fairly unusual, just demographically. So the Republican Party doesn't pay attention to that. It says this is about free enterprise, or this is about low taxes, or this is about loving our military or or whatever, right? But it, it's an ideological configuration. It's not kind of a personal or demographic or sociological configuration, even when there is a recognizable demographic shape to Republican voters and Republican candidates generally. So those two different configurations are really important to understand because if the the reason that someone is just not going to be aware that you know a republic in which we have senators directly elected and a federal income tax is unrecognizable in several senses in you know 1795 the reason you can't believe that is because you kind of got the stars and stripes draped over history and the problem there is that that is now a myth that you're that is that is really using you rather than a history that you can use. So the founders, conversely, when they're using their own history, whether English history or especially ancient history, is really important to them for their understanding, particularly of concepts of liberty. Okay, they don't want you know the Union Jack or anything else draped over that history. They're saying. You know, for example, the reason that we're going to structure the office of the presidency in the way that they did, which is not the way that it's structured today, is because when one man gets that much power, it's bad for the entire commonwealth. So we're not going to do that because we can observe this and that in Roman history or Greek history or wherever else. And that's why we're not going to do that. So when you're when especially for Republicans, when everything is shaped so much in myths, I mean, sometimes I like democratic politics, not that I am a Democrat, but I like democratic politics because sometimes it just seems so much more honest. (laughs) Like, you know, we need this many black guys in the Brooklyn City Council because this is how black these different precincts are. 
because they're going to fight for what they want, you know, or like we, you know, we can't enforce COVID laws too harshly on Orthodox Jews in Queens and Brooklyn because the problem is they control this much voting power. But, you know, like at least it's about real things. But <laughs> but I mean, if I if I elect whatever Nikki Haley, what am I going to get? She's going to tell me she loves the military like cool. And Ukraine you know? and Ukraine and yeah, Ukraine. I mean, I think I think that this is something that often our elites have a lot of trouble understanding or let's say our regime occupiers have a lot of trouble understanding is that people don't just like Trump because they like his rhetoric or something. They like him because he was talking or still does talk about things that they observe. Yeah. And when politics become purely ideological as they were in, in a rather, in a much purer sense in 2000, and that is something I want to talk about today, but when politics become purely ideological, they become unreal to most people's lives. It's like you go to a church and all you ever hear about is some other country, but observably your own kids and grandkids don't go to church, but no one, including the pastor or some visiting, no one ever talks about that. No one ever addresses it. It's not the focus of any kind of giant push of any kind. So those kinds of troubles, when something is right in front of people's eyes, but nobody ever discusses it, those are things that cause distrust in systems. Like whether it's democracy or monarchy or whatever system of government inside a church or outside, you want to talk about what what's really the issue is that when people in power never discuss what is in front of normal people's eyes, that's when distrust and cynicism reach new heights because they know they can see my grandkid, you know, died of an opioid overdose and he had horrible confirmation instruction, but here's the pastor telling me why I need to care about this or that, that has nothing to do with these things right in front of my eyes. So when, when we're talking about electoral politics, the reason we're doing it is not because it's the greatest system. I mean, I, I hate when people talk about America, like it's the greatest country on earth. I, how do you know? I mean, like what, what's your scale for comparison? That's fine. You want to believe that? That's fine. I, I don't care about it because it's the greatest. I care about it because it's mine. Like I don't run around being like the Coons family is the greatest family on earth. It's my family. That's why I care about it. You know, it's kind of simple. So as we talk about electoral politics, we're not doing it because it's like, yeah, abstractly, like I wish everything was set up just the way America is. We're talking about it because the things right in front of our eyes either do or don't get dealt with by this system of dealing with life. Can ideal, uh, can ideology be about things that matter or does it have to be only about political formula in a platonic concept world? Ideology should be about things that matter. It's not that ideology is necessarily evil in and of itself. It's evil is in its tendency toward abstraction from life. So I'll just give you, I'll give you an example from 2000. Okay. A major issue in the 2000 election, if you can believe it, I mean, something they talked constantly about was, the, was how they were going to figure out what social security was going to be and how they were going to pay for it. Okay. So what, what's kind of lovely when you go back and read about 2000, even the entire campaign up to the Florida recount is how comparatively small the political issues are. No one is, no one is saying, nobody is saying your kid needs to become gay and, and enter into a legal gay marriage. Nobody is doing that anywhere at that time. It's kind of amazing. Al Gore was very diligent to make sure that people would be like, oh, look at this man and his beautiful wife and his lovely family. You know, like 
like you go back and you look and you just i mean you just look at people's faces in the crowd you're like these look like normal people <laughs> people are not people it's it's not yet the experience that you can have in certain you know uh stores or public places in the united states where you walk around and it's like i think everyone might be a mutant yeah, everyone looks strange everyone looks sad or everyone looks mentally ill it's not the case there's people look relatively normal in many of the photos I've just, you know, here's Al Gore talking to people in Palm Beach, Florida, whatever. It's kind of amazing. It is. And the issues. Yeah, go ahead. Well, the 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 people who are going to be the the diversification by mutation factor of the American populace, <laughs> they're born, though, now. Yeah. They're, they're right. engaged at a certain point in what's going to make them who and what they are. Yeah. And, and I that's a really fascinating you know thread to pull on. Um, I, I lived through this time period mm -hmm. as an adult, yeah. uh, a voting age adult, young, but, but there, and what I find interesting in my memory is that election felt like it meant a lot. Mm -hmm. I didn't yeah. follow politics at all. I, mm -hmm. I, I worked at a restaurant, I was going to school. I, I kind of still was uh, pretty liberal, honestly, in, in, mm -hmm. as a general human being. Um, and, uh, and yet I remember being absolutely terrified that, that Al Gore could win this thing and convinced that, <laughs> that, that Bush needed, needed to win this yeah. thing. Yeah. And, I, and I followed the dimple Chad thing, you know, yeah. as, as much as I could pre, you know, really internet news, it was starting, but it really wasn't there yet. Right. Um, and so, so I, I find that, that to be odd as well. So from, from me and down, uh, you know, the, the age bracket that is coming of age at this time are the ones that are going to end up with, with pink hair and, and, and spikes in their yeah. face and all this stuff. Yeah. And yeah. we're very aware, those of us who are watching in any way, that this is like this, it's like good versus evil. But I think back to what the evil was, and it was Monica Lewinsky um, and, and, and maybe I know that underneath the table, uh, one of the major changes in American politics under the Clintons, aside from them uh, garnering FBI power and, and uh, having people, you know, often all this uh, is um, was the deregulation of pornography uh, that that took place, which really led to its yeah. freedom to spread on the Internet the way that it has, which right. may indeed connect very right. directly to why people are so strange today. I just just throw that out there no, for, you're right. for a moment. You're right. And there there's a lot of rot underneath. So it's not that ideology is evil in and of itself, but th th that's an instance in which the rot underneath was either not immediately present to people's lives in the way that right. porn or opioids or, you know, I mean, yeah, the people that are teenagers at that time, the first election I, I could vote in was 2004. People that are teenagers in 2000 are now the people who are, you know, taking their kids to get gender affirmation surgery at this at this point. Right. right? So the rot is there. It's it's that when when ideology is so pure and you're right that even at the time, the media behaved as if the stakes were enormous. And you look back at 2000 and you're like, uh, OK, two um, purportedly Christian heterosexual white males with functional apparently happily families i mean i'm saying apparent to cover you know life is what it actually is I mean, there were no crack addicts like with their laptops in the discussion at the moment no. of the election no no and nobody was like let's you know 
I mean, just lots of things were just completely unthinkable. And they're up there talking about like, how are we going to structure the Department of Education? What about the federal inheritance tax? What about prescription drug benefits for seniors? (laughs) Right, right. I mean, it's just so small compared to today. And the problem there is that it becomes purely purely ideological. You are you're worried that Gore's going to get elected. People are terrified Bush is going to get elected. In actual fact, probably they both were going to go into Iraq. Probably they were both going to go into Afghanistan. I mean, the things that would actually affect the lives of most Americans over the next 20 years were not at all in any kind of open public debated way on the line in that Mm -hmm. election. Yeah. Yeah. The gap was tiny and things like, okay, we just passed the Defense of Marriage Act in 96. Then we had Lewinsky in 98. None of that was being controverted. None of that. That was 98 was an embarrassment. And 96, we all agreed that we were supposed to crack down on crime in our cities, which now we're defunding the police. We were supposed to crack down on crime and marriage was between one man and one woman federally with enormous numbers of you know agreement between Democrats and Republicans. So life had not fractured nearly so openly. I think that you're right that it was all kind of there, like the plates were pushing against each other and the tremors were underneath, but the earthquake hadn't yet, you know, actually shaken anything off anyone's dining room, you know, table. Well, that that gets us back to what I I think is a a major theme for us, which is that much of what we see as politics is, is theater that is normalizing where it wants to go in slow steps by programming and preparation over time yeah, and not coming out and saying, so here's where we're going next. Like it's just not really the, yeah. the way they go about it. And, and theater is a really important word because I'm not saying that anything involving Bush v. Gore, either the Supreme court case, and we should provide some kind of just basic narrative. Yes. Some we'll get there. So yeah. Bush v. Gore or, or just the, that moment in American history, theater is important because theater is not actually fake. It would be fake if I said, you know, my name is not Adam Clinton Kuntz. That would be fake, right? That is my theater is when you are when something is presented as real and really affects you. That's a little bit different from it. I think people think that politicians just lie like, you know, <laughs> Clinton lied about the nature of his relationship, at least at first with Monica Lewinsky. No, theater is not a lie. Theater is some sort of, it is something much more powerful than the kind of lying that like a 10-year-old does. You say like, did you eat that? And he's like, no. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not theater, okay? Theater is much more serious. And it might be in a strict, like, is this true objectively or not way? It might be a lie, but it's not the same thing as simply lying or being evasive. Theater is much more powerful than that in the way that it puts things together. So, for example, and I think that this is this is part of the naivete people have about public figures is that they believe that there is no theatrical component to it, that there is nothing to the choice of the tie color that they use. So interesting to go back to 2000, the red v. blue thing is not yet hardened in the way that electoral maps are presented or polling is presented. So you'll find Bush wearing a blue colored tie and Gore wearing a red colored tie much more often than you would today. (laughs) So these kinds of things change over time. And something that I think people are naive about is the awareness 
that especially politicians, campaign staff, people who work in public have of the theatrical nature of their job. And this is something that is, this is really not true, especially prior to TV, except on a local level where you can actually visually access the person. But since TV, the job is so much more definitely theatrical. And the theatrical nature of that is that they they are not in 2000, even if in their heart of hearts, they believe, you know, gay marriage would be fine or whatever things that have changed since then. They're not pushing that. They're still pushing like I'm normal. Another thing that I notice about 2000 is that everyone is still wearing a suit and, of course, a tie in public. So not just a, a coat and a tie, but a suit and a tie in public if he's a man who has an official public position. So that that has changed radically now. Now that would be seen as stiff or something. So it's really not that long ago that... So it's it's kind of like entering into a different world and, and it's fun for that reason, even if in retrospect, people act like it was all convoluted or something. Uh, for those who would like to go a little deeper on the nature of television changing the political dynamic, uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death is a, is a quick wreck. You should definitely mm-hmm. pick that up if you have not. So uh, we can do the story a little bit. Yeah. Uh, what I don't your, your opening statement in your notes for me, um, when it seemed there were no proxies, you, you got me got me stumped there. What's that about? The idea there is that I think a lot of people both before, during, and after specifically the election controversy or the recount controversy that ran for a little over a month between election day and December 12, 2000, when the Supreme Court ruled in a very close ruling along blatantly ideological lines that there should be no statewide hand recount in Florida. So Florida's 25 electoral votes went to George W. Bush so he would be elected the president of the united states when the electors came together or i'm sorry when the election results would be certified by congress in january of 20 uh, of 2001 in that time period a lot of people i think still thought and were dismayed to see that the way that even electoral politics happens let alone the way that systems that don't apparently rely nearly so much on the will of the people are, are extremely complex and do not rely on some sort of simple appeal to this is what the people want. That is why it's very interesting to me that in our present time, we get continual discussions of democracy and our democracy. And that if you, if you don't have a certain narrative about what happened in January, 2021, that you are somehow a danger to our democracy or you are semi-fascist or something. The significance of that is enormous because something to notice about the American electoral system and in the narrative about this recount, you'll see this, is that it is not designed to be a, quote, democracy. The will of the demos, that is, of the people, is one factor among others. But 2000 is notable for being the first election in a long time that is now a fairly frequent occurrence where the Republican candidate was elected with, of course, a majority of votes in the Electoral College, but having lost the nationwide popular vote, which is just a fiction of election news coverage. 
there is for constitutional purposes, no such thing as quote, the popular vote. It doesn't matter that 40 million people in California want something in and of itself. They don't outweigh the other states. But that is not obvious when you say our democracy, because then it sounds like what a person wants in some place somewhere. And if there's enough of them in California, New York, the rest of the country can, you know, go to hell. That idea is not constitutional or historical in the United States, but it's it's very powerful in our political rhetoric. I remember at the time uh, calls about the injustice of the electoral college being yep. being pretty yep. common there. Yeah. Yeah, and the the rhetoric there surrounds the idea and it's going to be a refrain that Gore is going to make for reasons that are both ideologically powerful but also just kind of blatantly cynical that every vote counts because here's what the, here's what the situation is and it involves the interplay between the electoral college and the media and campaigns is that in 2000 you are still getting a very high reliance on exit polling in predicting who is the winner of this or that state and florida whose governor at the time was jeb bush and george w bush was the governor of texas at the time florida was thought to be a safe state for republicans in 2000 it was a swing state the swing states were Almost all the same. Oregon was a swing state in 2000, so that's not really the case anymore. Bizarre New, world that, man. Yeah. New Mexico was still more of a swing state. It sort of still is. Um, but a lot of them are, are recognizable. Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Florida. And Florida was still growing really fast. I mean, it's still growing, but it's not growing as fast as it did in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So Florida had grown a lot since the 1990 election. It had a Republican governor. It had a Republican state legislature. Its Supreme Court was overwhelmingly democratically appointed, meaning presumably liberal. And I think what people assume very naively about the American system of government is that it has dealt with the problem of power and resolved it by having really great procedures. So we just have procedures. So you just have to follow the procedures and then it's fair and then the will of the people is done and everything is good. And the problem is that it's just not a realistic view either of human nature or of our system of government. And to be fair to the founders on both sides of the Constitution question, Federalists and Anti-Federalists, they had a much darker vision of human nature than the vast majority of us do. So people were shocked to learn that, for example, right away on election night, polling services um, like Voters News Service and others, as well as overwhelmingly democratically connected media companies began when polls closed in the Eastern time zone. So that's 7 p.m. Eastern. But remember that Florida is actually in two time zones. The, the panhandle is in the central time zone. When polls had closed in most of Florida, that is in kind of like the, the leg of the boot, if you imagine Florida is kind of an upside down cowboy boot. In the leg of the boot, polls had closed, and they began to call Florida for Al Gore, Al Gore and Joe Lieberman. And the, the problem there is that that was all based on exit polling. That can, mm -hmm. of course, be based on by 7.45 p.m., like all, you know, the millions of votes in, say, Miami-Dade County have been counted, and they know it's Al Gore, much less the fact that the election is not only still going on in the rest of the country, it's even still going on in other parts 
of the state of Florida. So if you have the upside down cowboy boot, it's going on still in the toe of the boot. Yeah, Tallahassee. And, yeah, and there's thinking that and, and Bush's campaign begins to call these media companies right away and saying, you're suppressing our votes hmm. because there are people because the toe of the boot is pretty reliably red. It was then it is now it's kind of the rural south plus military people in Pensacola, very red area. You're suppressing our votes. We're going to lose Florida because you're telling people we already did and you don't know that. So but they don't actually reverse this call for several hours. After a couple of hours, so now we're like 9 or 10 p.m. Eastern on election night, November 7th, 2000. They're now saying, okay, well, uh, maybe now we're now calling. We're reversing the call. And it's really funny if you go back and watch the news footage. And that's what's great about relatively recent history. You can you can see Dan Rather basically saying, like, I'd understand if you hated us. <laughs> wow. Because we're now calling Florida for George W. Bush. So they reversed this. So it's kind of bushes. So we we all kind of think by about midnight Eastern time or 1 a.m. Eastern time, George W. Bush is going to be the next president of the United States of America. But not everyone in in not everyone in Gore's camp actually believes that that should happen. So they're debating it. Gore actually begins to form a limo entourage to leave from where he's watching to where he's going to give his concession speech at about 2 a.m. Eastern time. And they call him while he's ready to get into his car and they say, don't, don't concede. So he's already called Bush to say, I'm going to go concede. Now he calls him back and says, I'm not conceding. I remember that. I remember that being one of the reasons I actually cared the most about the thing. There like, you go. I was super bothered by the fact that the guy conceded and then was like, I, I changed my mind. <laughs> I didn't lose and, after all. Yeah, no. And and so so it's it's basically a mess from the beginning. And the mess generally originates, people are going to say it's, it originates in the election processes of the state of Florida. It originates as a mess in public as a result of media coverage. So when you're thinking about our system of government, it's really kind of impossible to imagine at this, if you want to go with my, there are sub, there are different republics, or if you want to say at this juncture in the one American republic, I don't really care. You really can't talk about it with talking about the, without talking about the media. Yeah, because the way that the media handles something is the way that not only, you know, the average guy sitting there at home and, you know, whatever, Wakulla Springs, Florida thinks about voting. It's also the way that the people who are supposed to be in charge of our country think about what is happening. They're watching the same TV you are. They have different kinds of access, but they're watching the same TV and they're reacting on the basis of that TV. And I think that that's something that we we haven't talked a, a whole lot about in the show, partly because historically it's not always a factor, but certainly at this point in history, it is that, for example, when Florida gets called for Gore initially, a lawyer who works for George, uh, I'm sorry, for Jeb Bush in Florida, he starts calling because he's like, well, we're going to contest this. They actually... Both campaigns realize right away, we're going to contest this. Mm -hmm. We're not going to sit with this. And he call, he starts calling around to different law firms throughout the state of Florida. This is before it got reversed and therefore before Gore conceded and then didn't concede. He, Joe, This guy's name is Joe Jimenez. And he starts calling around and he says, 
hey, you're the biggest firm in Miami. You're not going to help Gore if we sue him, right? Hmm. You're the biggest firm in Tallahassee. You're the biggest firm in Orlando. You are going to be, you're either going to stand, you're going to, you're going to stand outside of this, or you're actually going to help the Bush campaign. Right. And what are they going to say? Because they're local law firms and they need to do business with the state of Florida, which is completely controlled by Republicans. So none of this was ever purely about what the guy sitting at home in whatever Orlando thinks, much less how he voted. It's always about how the different groups in different power, let's say sectors or centers interact with each other. But one of those really big power centers is the group that is shaping everybody's sense of what is even occurring, which is the media. Which at the time was still a very much smaller, um, it was insular group than it is now, right? Yes. I mean, you had just several stations. Cable TV did exist, but not cable TV exists, not like it does now. And it wasn't it wasn't a constant feed by people, especially who cannot make a living unless they keep your eyeballs on things. So there was a different financial reality to the media. So the media begins to swarm to Florida roughly around daybreak the day after the election. But so do lawyers for both Democrats and Republicans, as well as operatives of various kinds for Democrats and Republicans. And they're all down there within roughly 24 hours. But what the media is doing from that point on is they're setting up, and this is a little bit different maybe for some of the, especially younger listeners to appreciate, is that everything happens through TV at this point, TV or maybe the newspaper. So because of that, you don't have the same kind of constant stream that we do today. So this all seemed much weirder than it would today. Because the idea that, for instance, when they begin almost immediately in heavily Democratic counties in the southeast, right? So you've got Florida kind of has North Florida, Central Florida, South Florida, geographically speaking, Southeast Florida, Miami-Dade County, Palm Beach County, Broward County, Palm Beach County, heavily Democratic. I mean, in the tank, like they're as Democratic as the state of Massachusetts or Rhode Island or something, Hawaii, very Democratic. So the issue right away, if we know that initially Bush, if he wins, quote unquote, has only won by a couple thousand votes, and then that gets whittled down over the next couple of days to a couple hundred votes, then the place that we're going to find more votes is going to be probably in the southeast because we have tons of people there. It's kind of the Miami metro area, and they're heavily Democratic retirees from the northeast people that grew up as part of the New Deal coalition, you know, Jewish New Yorkers, Irish, Italians. And so we're going to count those people's votes over again to make sure that we get most of them. Because here's the reality in any election. If you are behind before a recount starts, you want the recount to go on as long and as widely as possible. If you're ahead when the recount starts, you want the recount to be as short and as narrow as possible. That's just reality for anybody anywhere. So the guy that is managing Gore's campaign at this point is the son of Richard M. Daly, the longtime mayor of Chicago. This guy's name is Bill Daly. So he's done this before. He he knows this. He knows where to find a voter five. He knows where (laughs) to find the votes. So they know exactly what they're doing. Now, the way that that's going to, and this is where I, I look at politics as theater rather than as, oh, they're just lying to me. Gore is going to be on TV the day after the election through December 12th saying, 
Every vote counts. Every vote counts. Every vote counts. This will be such a slogan that people know that Antonin Scalia will actually mock Gore during the oral arguments for the second Supreme Court case by saying to Gore's head lawyer, David Boies, and as we know, Mr. Boies, every vote counts because on like December 8th, 2000, basically anyone who watched TV ever knew that slogan, mm. even if you've forgotten it by now. So Gore's going to say every vote counts. He's saying that because, yes, you know, blah, blah, blah. He believes that on some level. He's also saying it because he knows he can't win unless they count as many votes as possible. So uh, where was Ray Epps during all this? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned operatives. And uh, so, so. Yeah, well, and, and, the, and the term operative, I think, sounds... Maybe it sounds sketchier than it is, but maybe it is as sketchy as it sounds because operative operative makes it sound sketchier. Like a lot of things that occur are going to be interpreted by one's political opponents always as being done from the most evil of motives. So on the side of Democrat, the, the action of the Democrats, the Democrats are going to try to suppress military absentee ballots as those continue to come in over roughly five days after the election up to two weeks after the election, because they know that the military, at least in the year 2000, is going to vote overwhelmingly Republican. That, that's kind of a commonality of American history. Maybe that will change, or maybe that is changing, but in 2000, it's still very much the case. The military has been voting overwhelmingly Republican, especially the officers since Reagan, and so they don't want those votes to come in. So some things that a lot of people are, have forgotten about Probably everyone knows that the 2000 election was about malfunctions or confusion about voting and who voted for what. Probably a lot of people know that. They might even know that there were problems in voting with different kinds of voting machines, especially in Palm Beach County, where a lot of people who were probably elderly Jewish people and Jews as an ethnic group, are they're actually the only people that are more reliably democratic than Jews as a voting bloc in America are American Blacks. So you have a lot of elderly Jewish people voting for Pat Buchanan, who's kind of to the right of Attila the Hun in American electoral <laughs> terms. And so it, like thousands of votes in Palm Beach County and even Pat Buchanan's campaign is like, yeah, that, that's obviously that's wrong. So people there's just kind of technical problems with voting throughout the state of Florida, but especially in the southeast where Democrats should be racking up thousands and thousands of votes some of which are going to like Pat Buchanan. It's completely improbable. So Republicans are challenging those votes and they don't want those recounts to happen. Democrats are challenging the votes that are coming in from military members who are stationed in Saudi Arabia or the Philippines or whatever, because they don't they know those are going to be Republican votes nine times out of 10. They don't want those to come in. So both sides are challenging votes that they find demographically, notice we don't say ideologically, demographically unlikely to count for them because the stakes are so high, because the vote margin is so thin. So you're going to suppress the demographics that you don't want. And everyone recognizes this. This is just kind of, no one gets bitter about this inside the campaigns. Outside the campaigns, the media is going to cover this, and they'll cover it in such a way that the Democrats actually get publicly embarrassed about suppressing military votes. And at one point, they've actually, they've decided, no, we're going to challenge military votes in court, and Joe Lieberman, who's the vice presidential candidate under Gore, 
he goes on the Sunday talk shows and Tim Russert asks him on NBC, you know, what about these military ballots? You know, blah, blah, blah. you know, our, our, you know, our men and women in uniform and, and Joe Lee Ruman says, I don't think we should be suppressing any of those. And his campaign actually gets angry at him <laughs> because that would be like a Republican. Now Republicans usually don't get this question, but that would be like a Republican getting the accusation. You're suppressing the black vote. And the Republican being like, well, I don't want to suppress the black vote. Of course, for other reasons, the Republican could never say, I want to suppress the black vote. But that is, in fact, what he wants to do, because those folks are not voting for him. And he wants them not to turn out, basically. Correct. Right. Yeah. So you have you have the you have the ballot malfunctions. You've got absentee ballots. And then the other thing that is generally forgotten, but went on to matter a lot for Florida politics in years afterward would be at least accusations. Okay, so this is sort of on the level of this would be to like Democrats, sort of what you would get in, you know, it's sort of like if you met a left winger in 2022 who had seen and believed 2000 mules, that's the kind of improbable situation you would get, because what you had was black Democrats, especially and Jesse Jackson flies to Florida the day after the election alleging that, for instance, the Florida State Police were running stop and frisk operations or speed traps in heavily Democratic precincts in places like, or heavily Black precincts, also therefore Democratic, in places like Jacksonville and Tallahassee to suppress the Democratic vote throughout the state by suppressing Black votes. So there's there's a couple of different things going on, both in just pure election malfunction and who voted for what and how do votes count. You mentioned dimpled chads that has to do with counting how perforated ballots get counted, what counts as a vote. In heavily black precincts, there are a lot of what in retrospect, because people did go back and scan. I mean, even in like 2000, scan into a computer and look at academics would study what were all of what is every single vote that happened in the state of Florida. So in heavily black precincts, you get a lot of what are called overvotes where like they vote for Al Gore and then they write in Al Gore hmm. and a machine counts that as a, as a, as a void vote because it looks nonsensical. So of course, Al Gore wants a hand recount in a precinct like that because those people, I mean, a human being can tell that person voted for Al Gore. A machine can't tell that. So you get kind of on one hand, immense distrust especially of each other. And Florida is helpful in this way because Florida is so, it always has been diverse to an unusual degree in the United States. But Florida in 2000 is more like the United States in 2022 than the United States in 2000 is like Florida in 2000. Hmm. Florida is a little bit more like the future than the rest of the United States is. So it's mega diverse. People do not trust each other. They don't trust each other inside the state, let alone you know, on some kind of national stage. So you have kind of distrust among the populace of the process that's going on. You then also have within these different power centers, both in Florida politics and national politics, immense distrust between different groups that hold power in different places. So the Florida legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, doesn't trust the Florida Supreme Court. The legislature certifies the electors to be sent off to Washington as Florida's official electoral college result. The Florida Supreme Court says, no, we're going to decide what happens and therefore who actually gets to whose whose votes will get counted. Then on the national stage, you obviously eventually have 
you have different district courts, but eventually you're going to have the Supreme Court decision. So you have all these different power centers operating, distrusting each other. But then you also have a populace that both in Florida and then because of Florida, the nation watching this happen begins to think maybe this is not all what it seems to be. Right. Yeah. Uh, I remember thinking um, this is messed up and uh, <laughs> the the I, my distrust of the machines probably uh, began there. Um, maybe maybe this question will kind of kind of get in that direction too. Although yeah. I, I really want to get to um, election denial and conspiracy theories. Yeah, but, we need um, to do that. Did the deep state? And I know you don't like that term, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I did do the, know what you mean. Did the deep state care about any of this, or is it their own screen, or is this kind of where we I, we just left mm-hmm. the beginning of the incompetent storm that we are now? in the middle of the the hurricane of that incompetence, which is globally collapsing, Mm -hmm. you see it showing it's like it's outer wings, uh, right, right in Florida at this time. I think I can, I think I can connect the notion of election denial to, to an answer to the question you just asked, because there are things about the Florida recount that are very much to be honest, utterly traditional in American politics. So one is that, dynamic that you know you need if you if you lost initially you need as big a recount as possible if you won initially you need as small a recount as possible so both in the courts and in public opinion in the media republicans are going to push to end recounts and certify the vote and democrats are going to push for the opposite you also get things that are very traditional like public, let's say, bad behavior or disobedience or rowdiness in connection with recounts. So people are screaming to each other in Palm Beach County about what counts as a vote and what doesn't, because even though the canvassing board, which are sort of the the county officials responsible for saying, this is what our actual vote count was, and Palm Beach is doing a hand recount for a while, they just don't get it in in time. They don't agree with each other about what the standard for counting a vote is. That's where the dimpled chad punctured chad all that kind of stuff chad is just the part that hangs off the ballot and should fall off entirely if you voted the right way they don't agree so they're screaming in public at each other miami sees what's called the brooks brothers riot where you fly down a lot of people that wear a lot of brooks brothers that is young republicans from from washington and the canvassing board in miami dade county at one point moves to a different room to continue certifying their recount process. Some of them are actually Republicans on that board. They seem to be fairly well-intentioned people. They didn't really understand how they were coming off, especially by going to a different room on a level nobody was in the same building. And the Republican operatives actually go up there and they they do they do actually intimidate and and yell at like I know where you live. Some of the people on the canvassing board and some of the recounters And that actually forces the canvassing board is like, we're not going to get this done in time. So we have to stop. So the recount stops. So Bush wins Miami-Dade. Core doesn't get any more votes. That kind of stuff, if you look at the history of American politics, is pretty normal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Especially in cities, but just anywhere. It is pretty normal. None of this has ever functioned purely on people filling out papers in a nice, quiet way, counting them in a nice, quiet way, and then accepting the results in a nice, quiet way. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that definitely brings me to the topic of being semi-fascist, right? Because 
there's a direct connection there. And <laughs> I, I, there's not a direct connection, um, but but there is an overall um, tie-in to the recognition that they are going to do and say whatever they need to do and say that, in yes. order to move whoever they need to move. Right. And right. so if they need to call you almost fascist, whatever that could possibly mean, I don't know how, right. I mean, like the, the essence of fascism is that it's going to be all in. <laughs> so I don't know how right. you're, yeah. you're a very bad fascist if you're semi-fascist. Right. Um, but they're going to call you whatever they need to call you. They're going to do whatever they need to do. They're going to pay whatever they need to pay. They're going to remove whoever they need to remove. Right. In order to continue to uh, achieve control of the power. And, you know, we called this show when we started it A Brief History of Power. And I don't think that was accidental. But it continues to kind of uh, strike me how important it is that, that that is what we're we're trying to reckon with, is right. that as Christians who believe in the the power of say weakness, the power of humility, the power of forgiveness, compassion, all these things, that uh, we live in a world that is truly operated by a lust for power. Uh, the young man. Uh, he does serve his belly and and his loin, uh, but soon enough and soon enough, uh, what really matters is his prestige, uh, his ability to do what he wants to do. And any man right. who has a taste for that uh, is not going to give up what he has gained. Uh, he's not going right. to go back and take a lesser seat. So um, within that, then, uh, maybe, maybe you want to res- respond to that in general, but then, you know, conspiracy theories yeah. uh, are, are not... Oh, apart from recognizing, like we, we all know that there's power at play. We all know that they're performing theater. So the conspiracy theory mind is sort of saying like, well, what's really happening? In, right. in, in one sense, it's a truth seeking. Don't get me wrong. UFOs, Bigfoot, all this kind of stuff. But like you're, you're after the real story. Uh, the truth is out there. Uh, right. Speaking of and, the I, 90s. and I think, and I think that's why, that's why theater is a better word than, than a lie or fakery because, they're not dealing with, and and this is in fact not even the way that the devil works. They're not dealing with utter, absurd, obvious falsehoods. So no one is claiming that, you know, some deeply blue county like Palm Beach County was actually won by George W. Bush. Okay. Or conversely, that some deeply red county in North Florida was won by Al Gore. That's not the point. The point is to come up with enough to substantiate what you're already trying to achieve in order to get to a point where what you're saying seems plausible, mm-hmm. right? That it's theater, right? So there's makeup, there's lighting, but you're you're working with what you're working with. You're working with the actors that you have, you're, you know? So like the Brooks Brothers riot, the point there wasn't to say that, you know, a, bi- a big problem that Gore had was that he was on the wrong side of that the controversy that this feels like ancient history about whether we were going to send Elian Gonzalez back to Cuba. Right. Okay. So yeah. the, the listeners can go look that up. Pastor Fisk <laughs> and I have immediate yeah. recall on Elian Gonzalez. This was like all over all of TV. It was a big deal. Big, it was big, a big deal. deal. So Clinton in 96 had won a lot of the Cuban vote in especially Miami and, and Gore lost probably all. I mean, he got destroyed in getting Cubans to vote for him. So nobody's claiming that Gore, you know, got all those votes. So what they're what they're really just looking for in the Brooks Brothers riot is to stop the recount 
so that Gore has less of a pretext than he would otherwise if they had discovered more votes from a heavily black precinct or, or more votes from a, a wealthy white liberal precinct or whatever. So that's that's what's going on. It's all about plausibility and probability. It's not about, and I think like if the listener got upset when he was called semi-fascist recently by our current president, the idea that you would get sincerely upset by any of this is just kind of silly. It's just the way that the game is played. It's the way theater operates. It's like, it's like getting angry that they're using lighting and makeup to make the actors look more evil or or more beautiful or whatever they're trying to achieve than they do. That's just the way that this operates. So the concept of election denial, I mean, something that you see happening now that you didn't see happening then was trying to make unthinkable the idea that you wouldn't agree with the publicly announced results of an election. At this point, it's like evil if you don't actually think that Joe Biden got elected or you think that he was elected under, you know, suspicious circumstances or whatever the case is. Okay. If you have any, you know, you have any resistance to what was sent by the state of Michigan to, you know, to Washington as Michigan's official electoral vote in 2020, then you're an election denier and you're a conspiracy theorist and you're a now MAGA Republican is, is an evil word, right? So in 2000 and even into 2004, but especially in 2000, it's kind of a commonplace on the left that Bush isn't really the guy that we elected, that that Al Gore was elected. And the only reason that that wasn't publicly recognized was because the partisan Supreme Court. Now, this does sound like today, the partisan Republican sup- controlled Supreme Court of the United States stopped a hand, wa- a, a statewide manual recount, which was ordered by the Florida Supreme Court. And because they stopped that in in the case Bush v. Gore in in December of 2000, Gore was his votes. The votes for him were not counted. He was actually elected, but Bush got Florida's electoral votes. He's not really the president. This is probably the first time that you get a really widespread. He's not my president Mm -hmm. phrase because they didn't actually. And this was just normal. I mean, there's a, a really fascinating source of primary documents from this time called the battle for florida edited by a guy named lance DeHaven smith who taught political science at florida state it's a really great collection but lance DeHaven smith believes and says explicitly in there this election was stolen from al gore and joe lieberman by conspiracies especially by jeb bush the governor of florida and by katherine harris the secretary of state of florida i mean he's he says that out loud, and this was published by the University Press of Florida in 2003. And this was just normal, and nobody thought it was like bad or evil or wicked. It was just he didn't agree. He didn't know. think that he, Bush he, had actually been elected. He was a threat to our democracy. That's what he is. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, on the kind of upside down world, I mean, can, yeah. you, can you imagine how much better things would be for the Republican Party if Gore had gone to Iraq? I mean, it would have. Right. It would have been completely different uh, 2008 to 2018 space because they could have blamed the Democrats for all that, all the all the public yeah. goodwill. I mean, that would have been really I, something. I thought about that when you asked me what was on the line for the deep state, because my answer to that question is not much. I mean, especially vis-a-vis foreign policy, the distinction between Bush and Gore was very small because Gore was it was running explicitly as a centrist Democrat or a new Democrat. 
and he was pro business and he was pro military and and it, and, and, it opened and, up the opportunity for him to get into film and like start making money on wind turbines and also I mean it really went well yeah. for him in the long run. Yeah, yeah. Well, Gore took a strain of himself, and this is, I mean, if you think about actors this way, sometimes this happens too. Gore took a strain of himself, which was a very left wing strain. I mean, Gore actually ran farther to the left than than he was either as a vice president or that he certainly he had been as a senator. I mean, he was a, kind of an unusually right wing. Now he was a right wing. He was a senator from Tennessee in the eighties, so there were still such a thing as conservative Southern Democrats. In Florida, he still kind of ran as a conservative Southern Democrat. And if you find footage of him talking to like white Floridians, you will notice a Southern accent he never otherwise has. Huh. But there's a strain of that that I mean, he was raised in. I mean, his dad was from Tennessee, but he was raised in D.C. He doesn't doesn't really have a Southern accent, but but he. He took a strain of himself that did come out a little bit. The environmentalism came out in the 2000 campaign. And that's what he turned into his career after running. Whereas George W. Bush didn't get to take when you when you actually get into some of these public offices, then you have to become more all things to all men. You can't take a strain of yourself and then accentuate it for a certain. You can do that after the presidency. So George W. Bush took his compassionate conservative thing. And that's the strain he accented after he left the White House. But if you get in the stakes, the stakes are not high for the deep state in 2000. They're high for one or the other party. Because what you get is an, an enormous spoils system when you are elected to the presidency. Mm -hmm. Those are the stakes for the man. They're also the stakes for anyone who is attached to the man. And at this point, the stakes are very distinct ideologically. So, for example, you know, if I'm in the military and I'm still trying not to get the vaccine now in 2022, I'm really hoping that something changes vis-a-vis -vis electoral politics by 2022 or 2024, or, you know, maybe I'm out of my livelihood or whatever. I don't know. Or I'm worried about this or that. In 2000, it's not like that, right? Light, everyday life is not going to change because Bush stole the election. I think part of the reason that the rhetoric is so different today is that for both the ongoing governmental presence and its various interests, the deep state, and for the average American, politics have a much keener or higher price attached to them. Whereas in 2000, it's like, it's not going to matter if you, like, if you live in Oregon or you live in Florida or you live in Texas or you live in Massachusetts. You're never going to have to wear a mask in a public building based on who the governor is or, or certainly who the president of the United States is. So everyday life is just a lot less affected. That's that's sort of the irony about this. And it's probably why guys like Lance DeHaven Smith or other people, there's a whole book about whether the 2004 that's Bush v. Kerry election was stolen by Bush, also published by two tenured political science professors. The reason that that's okay at that time is partly because you can allow people to disagree with you if it doesn't seem like it's anything except an intellectual disagreement. So if if Pastor Fisk and I have some disagreement about Pastor Fisk thinks Herman Sasa is the absolute greatest person ever, and I think he's the worst person ever, or whatever. Okay, that's like not that's not really about either one of us or our families or whether the sun's going to come up tomorrow. But if we have a disagreement that's about like if you don't think this, you are an evil person, or if you don't think this, you're going to hell or what, then obviously it's going to become much more vehement and probably have a much longer 
effect on our relationship to each other. So the thing that you see in 2000 is it's almost like the theater is showing you what the, like what it's going to be like, but without a sense of it being real. So one thing that leftists complained about as early as like January, 2001 is everyone is acting like this didn't just happen. (laughs) Well, the reason they're doing that and the reason probably the listener is not doing that about COVID is because in January 2001, it didn't matter except for news media companies and political operatives that that had just happened because life was whatever it was. It still matters for most of us that COVID happened. Yeah, I've, I find it interesting. It didn't It didn't make me distrust the system. Yes. I don't know right. why. I mean, it should have. Listening to I, this hour, it totally yeah, should have. I think, but I think that's why. I, because because after a while you're like yeah I mean I mean what what are your takeaways your takeaways are Democrats like to find ballots wherever they can find them or your takeaway is the Republican Secretary of State in Florida thinks that she's Queen Esther and the evangelical Christians are supporting her and I hate her but I don't live in Florida so now it's February 2001 and this really doesn't matter yeah I mean like it it wasn't if it doesn't impact your everyday life you probably won't realize that it does matter even though I can look back 22 years later and I can say, yeah, I can see pretty much all the same dynamics going on, partly as went on before 2000, but partly that are going on today. Politics is often about, you know, different, you know, strife between different groups. And it's kind of a, elections are kind of a proxy for that strife. And counting the votes in those elections is a is a proxy for which of our different groups we got to turn out. Did we get enough Midwestern retirees to vote Republican? And did we get enough blacks to vote Democrat? I mean, like all of that is very familiar. It's just that in 2000, it was presented to me. And I remember this. I I didn't vote, but I followed it. It was presented as purely like a procedural problem. Yeah. yeah. And that the only thing that was wrong with America were procedural problems. Yeah, and, and I trusted that the people in charge would do the right thing and fix it for next time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the, the complaint on the left is that we're not fixing it enough, we're not counting every vote, blah, 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 or you're running too many, you're, you're, you're cleaning the voter rolls too often, procedural problem, you're knocking off too many people who might be felons. And then conversely, it's going to be presented by Republicans as, you know, you didn't follow the Constitution. Constitution says the state legislature determines voting procedure and certifies the electors. You know, so you didn't follow the Constitution of the state of Florida or the, or the United States. It's always going to be procedural. And and you you especially still get this, I think, on the right, partly because of what we talked about at the beginning of the hour, that the right in America thinks of itself ideologically rather than as representing certain groups desiring certain kinds of power. It's not that I think that ideology isn't there. It's that I think that when you act like this wasn't really about like winning the spoils system, you you really don't see what it is that you yourself were even trying to do. You know, Jeb Bush didn't want to win just because it was his state. He wanted to win because of how much could be achieved if his brother became president or so that they could bring. This is totally forgotten. George Bush and Jeb Bush at the time were very, very, very soft. They still are very soft on immigration, legal or illegal. And so part of their anger about Trump by 2016 was we won the Republican Party like close to two decades ago. You don't get to decide 
what our, our immigration policy is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so this is a thought that's floated around a little bit and I want to try to get in before we're done, which is, yeah. Uh, so what, what happens so differently in, uh, in 2020 and, and 2016 is you really have a, a, a tribune of the plebeians showing up yeah. and, and claiming the seat of, yep. uh, I mean, they didn't have a president, they just had the Senate, but the, the tribune is garnering the power. Uh, and if you know much about Roman history, that that's when it all starts going crazy. That's right. <laughs> uh, and, and so because Trump is that outsider, and then more than this, I think, embraced the role because he could have gotten into office and just folded and joined the team. I mean, he, he really could have done that, but he, he didn't. He kind of embraced the role for the sake of his own lust and power or for the sake of his own abroad. I don't know. Right. Right. Um, but he said, uh, I, this, my constituency has put me here in this, this, this picture and I am going to stay this picture. And that yes. has been what has caused all the fallout from both parties, right? Uh, from the establishment. Yes. Um, up to then, the election denial and conspiracy theories about about 2020. Yeah, so the I mean the rhetoric against especially the right concerning particularly 2020 is is there because the stakes are that high if the left doesn't win anymore, right? I mean think about they they <laughs> they took very honest steps to like solidify not just the right to have an abortion in like the state of Oregon or Illinois. They they also, particularly when Thomas wrote his concurring opinion to Dobbs v. Jackson, they were like, oh, yeah, like contraception is in trouble because they they are being honest about how fragilely their power is configured. They're being honest. That's why they're being so vehement. But in connection with that, too, I think a lot of people were disappointed by Trump. And the reason they were disappointed is because they failed to understand the theatrical, not unreal, but theatrical nature of politics, which is true whether it's a democracy or a republic more purely, or an oligarchy, obviously, or a monarchy, obviously. That's what coronations are for. Politics is always to some degree theatrical. That's why there's a mismatch between what the politician says he's going to do and what he does do. It's not just because he's lying. It's because theater in front of a group of other people that hold actual power versus theater in front of a group of people that hold some very diminutive form of power, like a single vote in a precinct, is different in the way that playing in front of thousands of people at the same time is going to affect the actor's gestures differently than if he's playing in front of 50 people. That's just the reality of the nature of handling and obtaining power in front of groups of people. The thing to understand about the difference, where did we go from 2000 to 2020, is that you're right that when a someone representing something that is actually more obvious and popular gets in front of people, right? So notice how the popular vote is a good thing, but being popular might not be, you might be called a populist, is when you are representing things that the populace actually wants, that no one who currently holds power wants. And immigration is a very good example of that in American politics. But you will notice that, and we'll talk about this eventually, especially in talking about the 50s and 60s in America, which were not as harmonious as people remember. But something to notice is that when machines are beginning to fall down 
in American politics, they will behave the way that not just one party, but both parties initially reacted to Trump, the media reacted to Trump. And the significance there is not that Trump is entirely always exactly who he presents himself to be. There is performance on all sides. The significance is that like a city machine that realizes that if certain laws change or certain decisions are made, it will no longer have the hold on power and on money that it does have. It will react in the way that a cornered animal reacts. And that's why you get the change from you're allowed to deny that Bush is actually the president of the United States to you need to say out loud in public that Joe Biden won the 2020 election, literally in those words, or we will destroy your life. The reason being, we need you to affirm certain things because our grip on power is tenuous mm -hmm. in a way that in 2000, it wasn't at all. I mean, that was, in a way, <laughs> it was a purely procedural disagreement. <laughs> it wasn't, I mean, it, it wasn't in the sense that we talked about earlier, like there's a lot going on that's rotting in American life that no one was even talking about. But the reason that the vehemence was not there in February 2001, that is still there about our 2020 election today, as we record in September 2022, is because the people who are interested in maintaining power had a much firmer grip on the thing back then. So you wanted to, to tangent into this episode away from our prelude to World War II stuff because of the upcoming midterm elections uh, in, in the United States Congress Senate. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so I don't know if it's just my takeaway from, from the hour. I think I was already at this position, but I'm kind of of a view that elections don't matter the way I thought they did, but this election matters because um, if there is no change, if the tenuous grasp of power continues to have a tenuous grasp in power mm -hmm. after this, it's, it's, it's not just sort of a false game anymore. It's it's all over. Like From where I'm at, the only way that the House retains its Democratic majority is to outright steal it. But maybe that's just my feed, right? And I've just got the algorithm showing me what I want to see. Sure. But it seems to me from what I do see that there is a lot of pushback that indeed makes the current regime's grasp tenuous uh, because n no one's listening. And yeah. the louder they shout, the less people listen, which then we run into into November and, and they win a, the greatest turnout in history for midterm, right? And, yeah, uh, and more right. votes forever than ever for, for uh, various contested seats. Um, right. Uh, it only is going to affirm that that this thing is over, um, which I do I do think it is over. So I'm kind of expecting that, I guess, is what I'm saying. I'm kind of expecting okay. not a red wave, uh, but um, just some procedure. And, and and thank goodness democracy is surviving and we need another $44 billion for Ukraine this week. Yeah. So I think on the absolute deepest level of what is wrong with us, the, the answer we've always given on the show is that it is not a political problem. It is a spiritual problem. And that was always the case. The best that politics could possibly do would be to act like pornography or opioids were actually as massive of problems for our people as they are. Okay. There's another level on which I think a lot of people console themselves, especially on the right, by retreating to the, into the idea that all politics is unreal. And something that is a proxy for something else 
or something that is a performance of something else is not therefore unreal. You know, you can actually figure out what Shakespeare thinks about how people should lead and how men should be led by reading his history plays. That doesn't mean that Henry V actually gave the speech that Shakespeare puts into his mouth. Okay, so there's a difference between theater and the unreal. When you accept that it's theater and that there are certain tricks necessary in theater for production, successful production, crowd-pleasing production, whatever other measures of success that you have, then it's easy to accept that, okay, uh, these voting machines are messed up or this recount should happen in this way or it shouldn't happen at all or whatever it is then it's easy to see the procedures just for what they are. They are they are just procedures, but the reason to know about them is because they are tools in the production. And if you don't have those, then that's that's fine if you're too pure to care about things like this. But they do actually matter, not in this not in some sort of naive sense, like I'm gonna go vote and then they're gonna have to take this bad guy out because I don't want him to be there and and I voted for him to be taken out. And that's what they said was that's naive. And that's always been naive. I mean, most political machines, for example, care very little about the U.S. House of Representatives precisely for the reason that it's one of the jobs that is supposed to be most representative and carries the least weight. (laughs) So there have always been different levers of power. And one of the smallest of them is the vote that you, you know, register somewhere in a a precinct somewhere but all these different tricks the lighting the makeup the blocking all of this matters in a complete production whose aim is to obtain power which has both a way of coming to be but also then a way of being in 2000, the way of being wasn't really that distinct between the two different parties seeking power in the presidential election. At this point, the ways of being even on a school board or a library board can be very distinct. So I think that there is, and there was certainly induced in me at the time watching these things happen in 2000, a cynicism about the process that I think is lazy, When people say that there's no political solution to our problems, I completely agree with that in a basic sense of that phrase. I don't agree with it in the sense that allows you to simply disengage from life. So that's fine if you don't want to vote in the midterms. You know, your single vote probably doesn't matter. It's not fine if you choose not to participate in any form of government at any level and just leave the world to burn down. Because the stakes here mattered enough to people who actually understood what was going on to be on the ground in Florida by 6 a.m. the day after the election. And they weren't fighting to like keep their children, you know, safe from transsexuals trying to indoctrinate their children. They were, they were fighting for, I don't know what, like, uh, larger prescription drug benefit for seniors. (laughs) You know, I mean, it was in in retrospect, it was really pretty silly and simple. But when people actually understand what is at stake in the theater production, they are very, very diligent to get to play practice on time. And I think especially a lot of conservatives think that it's kind of like beneath them to engage in theatrical production. 
as if it somehow like sullies them or, or they are above these things. And, you know, I mean, you don't have to go out there and stump for, you know, whatever the, the, the gubernatorial candidate in your state. I mean, you don't have to, but the idea that you just don't do anything with other people in order to affect something that, that is, maybe it's the lesson the media wanted us to learn from 2000. Maybe that's why they were giving us live coverage of completely dysfunctional local organizations like the, you know, Broward County canvassing board live on TV being dysfunctional and, and, you know, incompetent, but maybe that was the point. I don't know, but if that's what you took away, then, I mean, of course you're going to end up more and more disenfranchised and angry because, you know, you're watching Joe Biden denounce you, but you feel like you can't do anything. And I think it's that, that paralysis that is induced, especially when people think that it wasn't theater at all. And then they realize that there, there is an element of theater in the whole thing. I think they were on the ground the next day at 6 a.m. because they were fighting for power. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and they, yeah. And that, and that does, that has always mattered, even when the stakes weren't so nearly personal as they are today. So what are you fighting for? You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You weren't to find us or you wouldn't be here. <laughs> 